3: All engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome.
4: Welcome. (laughs) This is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery,
5: advances,
4: advances questions, research,
6: technology.
4: Unbelievable.
5: Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientists.
7: Hello and welcome to the show where we bring you the latest in science, technology, and medicine. I'm Will Tingle from everyone here at the Naked Scientists. We hope you had a happy Christmas if you celebrate that sort of thing, and are looking forward to the new year. This week, we're taking a look back at 2023 and some of the outstanding scientific stories that came out of it. Everything from asteroid samples to red wine headaches.
4: From Cambridge University's Institute of Continuing Education, this is The Naked Scientists.
7: And what better way to fire us into this year's recap than with a bow and arrow – Europe's earliest bow and arrow, to be exact. In February of this year, a paper was released announcing the discovery of flint arrowheads found in a cave in France by Laura Metz and pointed to the idea that this weapon was being used more than 50,000 years ago. Chris Smith asked the University of Cambridge's Emma Pomeroy about the findings.
8: This study is reporting what is probably the earliest evidence for bow and arrow use in Europe from a site called Grotte mondrin, an apologies for my French accent, um, which is in the Rhone Valley in France. And these are stone tools from a particular layer, layer E, that dates to about 54,000 years ago. And it includes these really tiny points that are less than one centimetre across. So what they've done is some really detailed analysis, including microscopic work to see what they were used for, and some experimental work to compare you know, how these kinds of points would break when they're fired into something. And basically, they've concluded and, sh- and shown um, really interesting evidence that these tiny points were likely mounted on the end of a shaft and used as a projectile. And it's significant because we know from recent populations who use bows and arrows, when you put a tip on the end of a shaft like this, those tips aren't effective uh, if the shaft's much wider than the tip itself. So these must have been on really narrow shafts. With a narrow projectile like that, they're not effective if you throw them. So that indicates that they must have been used with a bow and arrow. So this pushes back the date for this mechanically assisted technology in Europe by about 10,000 years, and also the presence of of modern humans, interestingly, by about 10,000 years.
5: And who would have been wielding these weapons?
8: So that's a, a really good question. And it's one that's Sometimes hard to be 100% sure, because if we find particular tools, it's really hard to know which group of human ancestors might have produced and used them. And we know, for example, um, in this area at this time, there are Neanderthals and our own species, modern humans around. Um, The assumption has long been that this kind of mechanically assisted projectile technology is associated with our species, with modern humans. And interestingly, at this site, in the same layer, so it's layer E, they actually found um, a tooth which belongs to a modern human rather than a Neanderthal. And in the layers above and below, they found Neanderthal teeth in those layers. So, of course, the association between the tools and the teeth isn't necessarily saying, oh, well, that has to be that species that made it because their teeth are in the same layer. But it is quite suggestive that, you know, those are the, the kinds of humans that are around at that time. And so they're producing the tools. And, and similarly, for example, at the site in Italy, where we have some early projectile evidence as well, we have that Evidence in association with modern human remains, too. Not long
5: after this time, Neanderthals disappear from the timeline. So, do you think the two are connected?
8: I mean, it's possible, and that's an interesting argument that is sort of suggested in this paper. So Neanderthals really go extinct in, in Eurasia about 40,000 years ago. So that's a good kind of 14,000 years more recently than these particular artefacts. But one suggestion they're making is that these are sort of early forays by modern humans into Europe with this more kind of complex technology and that that might have played a role in giving them perhaps a competitive edge over Neanderthals.
5: What do you think might have provoked the anatomically modern humans who who engineered this technology to invent it in the first place? And why them, not the Neanderthals, if they were overlapping in similar environments, therefore presumably getting the same advantage potentially from these sorts of technologies, why did one not get it from the other or both invent it independently if it was so advantageous?
8: I mean, that's a really good question. And that's something that um, sort of academics have debated about for a long time. And there might be various factors involved. So one idea is that actually um, anatomically modern humans, our species were capable of... Um, more innovative behavior and, and coming up with sort of new ideas and new technology more frequently than Neanderthals there might be an element of chance in it as well so even amongst different modern human populations we know that not all of them had the bow and arrow and, and not all of them independently invented it in, in those that didn't already have it I mean you could also ask and, and this is suggested in the paper you know why Perhaps if these modern humans are turning up and they've got this really advantageous technology, why don't the Neanderthals who are in that region think, oh yeah, you know this looks good this is, this would be good for us. We'll copy that and do the same. Or perhaps in this case as well, you know we know Neanderthals and modern humans are, are using the same site, but the extent to which they actually encountered each other and had the opportunity to see what each other were doing and, and perhaps adopt that technology that we don't know.
7: Emma Pomeroy. Now, even now, the subject of COVID lockdowns is one that most of us would probably rather forget. But May of this year was the culmination of a lockdown success story, as during that time, one of the world's most remarkable fossil deposits was found by a husband and wife team, Dr. Joseph Botting and Dr. Lucy Muir. They spoke to Chris Smith.
9: Almost all of the, the fossil record misses the vast majority of animals because you only get the fossilized the bits that are the hard, the, the mineral shells, the bones, the teeth, that sort of thing. But there are very, very few places around the world where you can get by some sort of fluke of chemistry, the preservation of soft tissues, entire animals, um, extremely delicate structures, and we've found stumbled across a site like this near our home
5: Lucy. How did the two of you find this? Was this just at one of those lockdown walks?
10: Well, we actually found the site about 10 years ago and had done a bit of work there collecting fossil sponges, which is what Joe worked on. And then it came to the lockdown, Joe thought, oh, I'll go and get a few more specimens from that quarry, then I can write up that fauna. So he went out, hammered some rocks and found a little worm tube with tentacles coming out. And at that point, we knew there was a lot more there than just sponges.
5: And Joe, the, the quality of what you've got, is it, is it because the, the, the preservation is so good that you've got insights at, at very, very detailed levels or is it just that there's such a huge diversity there or is it both?
9: It's both. Yeah, we have um, something like 170 species, we think, so far. But the point is, it's everything. So we don't seem to be missing any major parts of the ecosystem. We've got everything from tiny little worms to little crustaceans to strange tentacled monsters. Uh, Mostly they're just one or two millimetres long, but um, but the detail within them is absolutely stunning it goes down to micron scale, so a thousandth of a millimetre resolution in some of the features that we're seeing. We've got the little arthropod that's um, two millimetres long and preserves its brain and its optic nerve and the eye. And another one with a gut that's 20 microns wide, 20 you know, thousandths of a millimetre. It's just extraordinary.
5: You mentioned, Lucy and Joe, the fact these are very, very small. I was staggered when I... Read your paper to learn that because you're, although you're honorary academics at a nearby institution, you basically had to crowdfund to buy a microscope to do this work. You've done this as almost citizen scientists.
10: Yes, that's right. We very soon realised that our small but adequate microscope just couldn't visualise the things that we were finding. So we actually tried crowdfunding to get a good microscope and a good camera. And people were incredibly generous. And we raised £18,000 and got two microscopes and two good cameras. So we can actually photograph the fossils, we can publish papers about them so that everyone knows about them.
5: That's, that's a microscope each, isn't it? Fantastic. And jo, um this... Assemblage that you've got dates from about 462 million years ago. What is the importance and relevance of that point in the timeline?
9: Yeah, this is an interval um, which is very important in the evolution of life. It's before the origin of land plants, before there was anything living on land, but after a period called the Cambrian, when we have a lot of these faunas that tell us how the first animals got going. But it's in a sort of gap in the record where we know life was diversifying spectacularly, that ecosystems were getting much more complex. But we only really know that from the Shelly fossils, the brachiopods and trilobites. So this falls into this gap and fills in a huge hole in our knowledge. because It's telling us what all the soft-bodied animals were doing at the same time.
5: And Lucy, do you know why what you found is there, as in why it's been so well preserved and why you've, you've still got it for you to find today?
10: The short answer is that's some of the work we're going to be doing over the the next few years. We've got some ideas. We know that the fossils, uh, well, the animals that became the fossils were buried alive, probably by sediment slumps. Uh, And we think there might be something a bit odd about the seawater chemistry, because we don't normally see this type of soft tissue preservation at this age. So the area was a volcanic island complex. So we think maybe all the volcanic activity made the seawater chemistry a bit odd, And that somehow allowed things to become preserved that would normally just have rotted away.
5: In your paper, Joe, you point out a lot of the animals are juveniles. So is it that this is is just the right place for young animals to be reared? Is that why you think that that volcanic island complex has got so many juveniles in there? Or is there some other reason why they're so heavily represented here?
9: It's actually very difficult to interpret this, because there's only one species that we can be sure we're looking at juveniles, and that's a trilobite that normally gets up to about six centimetres long, and here it gets up to five millimetres. Everything else, including a lot of these strange soft-bodied things, are actually the same sort of size, a millimetre or two, as they are in the modern, and much smaller than they were in the, the Cambrian before it. So we think that possibly it was an ecosystem maybe attached to undersea boulders and so on, where you have... A small sort of forest, if you like, of uh, little encrusting creatures and only small animals could really fi- fit into the ecological niches there. So the adult trilobites were off living somewhere else, but they they left their, uh, their juveniles to grow up there. But we don't know at this stage whether a lot of the other small crustaceans and so on were juveniles or whether they're actually adults of the same sort of size as they are today. It's going to be quite hard to work that one out. We're just going to need a lot more fossils in today.
7: Joe Botting and Lucy Muir, thank you very much. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Will Tingle, looking back at a year of science. Now, perhaps the most prominent advancement in any scientific field this year is AI. AI. There's been an explosion of possibilities and implementation of artificial intelligence and machine learning across the whole of the scientific spectrum, and the medical world was no exception. In May, a new type of artificial intelligence technology that could cut the time cancer patients must wait before starting radiotherapy was pioneered by Cambridge University researchers – the technology was trained to recognise and highlight the healthy tissues on a patient's body scan that the X-ray radiotherapy dose needs to avoid hitting. Chris Smith spoke to the Adam Brooks Hospital consultant, Raj Jenner.
6: The oncologist is trying to target the cancer within the body. Sadly, for many of the cancers that we're trying to treat, they're located deep in the body. So the only way for an X-ray beam to get there is to go through some healthy tissue. We could get rid of almost any cancer in the body with x-rays if we could get enough dose in. The problem is, is you have to go through healthy tissues to get there, and that limits how much you can give. So it's as much of a task to map out the cancer as the target as it is to map out all of the healthy tissues in the path so that we can actually get the beams in in a safe fashion.
5: What you're saying then, because we know there are things in the way of where you want to go, you're looking for the safest route in to get the maximum x-ray dose into the cancer with the least dose into the healthy tissue so you minimise the harm we do.
6: Exactly right. So the robotics of the system is very, very good at arranging different radiation beams to come in from different directions. But all that's no good if we don't have a map that shows us where we need to avoid, where the no-go zones are.
5: And that's what hitherto has been a human, very
6: labour-intensive task. Exactly. So for, a, for an oncologist working on this, depending on where the tumour is, it can take anything between 25 minutes to upwards of two hours to mark out all of these healthy tissues. So we were looking to try and accelerate that with the AI. How does it work? Well, what happens is once the patient is scanned, the data goes off through a safe mechanism so that we can run our machine learning algorithm and what's returned to the oncologist is a scan but with extra smarts because instead of just having the image to look at they get the image plus already we have marked out all of the healthy tissues and that means that overall the oncologist using this technology can go about two and a half times faster that's what we see as a sort of real world acceleration by introducing the technology. How does the
5: AI do that? How does it know what is the healthy tissue in the first place?
6: So it has to be trained, just as we all have to be trained. So we had to build it, a data set, in each case of about 150 patients. And for each of those patients, we had experts mark out exactly where the healthy tissues were. And then it took hundreds of hours to train the best model that we could. And then once we did that, we started evaluating its performance. When we got to the point where we were seeing performance that was starting to match human performance, then we knew we were onto to something.
5: I was going to say, having built the system, did you then give it an exam to do, as it were, You compare it with you versus it to see if it can do a better job almost than you can?
6: Exactly. So what we did, we gave our oncologists the preparation work. In some cases, it was done by the AI. In some cases, it was done by their colleagues. And we didn't tell them which was which. And we actually found that in two thirds of the cases, they actually preferred to start with the AI rather than their own consultant colleagues. And that's when we really knew we were onto something. So it produces a
5: scan with a lot of the markup done already to guide people in the right direction. So what does the oncologist add? Is it just a safety check? Or is it that there's still work to be done by the human here?
6: So the system hasn't learnt to mark up a tumour. Tumours are much more complex and varied. Our normal tissues follow a very set pattern so it's quite easy to get them to learn that but it's an order of magnitude more difficult for them to learn how to segment a tumour. So at the moment what the oncologist does is that they go straight to the tumour and they devote the lion's share of their time marking that out as precisely as possible and then they have to check everything that the AI AI does because at the moment that is our sort of you know safety check is that everything that the AI produces can't be accepted into our clinical system until the oncologist has approved it and said yeah this is safe to use.
5: And what sort of a difference is this making?
6: Well we have introduced this and other technologies into our workflow at Addenbrooke's where nationally we have a 31-day target between being told, right, we're going to go for a radiotherapy plan and actually starting it. In Addenbrookes, for the fastest growing tumours, we're aiming for 14 days. And actually, we're aiming to go even faster than that. We'd like to get it down to five days if possible. And it's these sorts of technologies that that help us do that.
5: And does this make a difference to the outcome for the patient? I know that it's a bit less time, and that's maybe good psychologically that something's being done a bit sooner but does it make a difference to disease and clinical
6: outcomes? Indeed it does. What we know is that for the very fastest growing tumours that we deal with you're two percent more likely to control a tumour every day that you can shave off that waiting time so it really does make a difference and on top of what you mentioned just that feeling of sort of you know staring down the barrel of a gun when you're waiting and you know that you need to start radiotherapy, and you would think, why can't I start now? And, and that must be a terrible feeling too.
7: Raj Jenner, thank you very much. Now, at this time of the year, with schools closing and crowds hustling and bustling to finish up their festive shopping, a lot of us, and myself included, are looking forward to a bit of peace and quiet. And as it happens, a study in July from Johns Hopkins University confirmed that silence can have as poignant or powerful an effect as noise. Over to James Titko to explain.
4: Philosophers have been grappling with a problem for centuries. If silence is just an absence of sound, a nothingness, why is it that it can be so emotive? For example, a rest in a powerful piece of music. or ducking into a quiet space from a busy street. Just as a well-placed full stop, paragraph break, or chapter ending in a novel can have a profound effect, so too a dramatic pause in a powerful speech or piece of music often communicates something through nothing.
1: And it does seem like as the audience. We feel these silences, right? Like These these silences don't just seem to be the absence of experience, but a positive thing. There's a positive experience that's being felt.
4: Rejago is a researcher in philosophy and psychological and brain sciences at Johns Hopkins University in America. And studying silence with science presents some challenges.
1: Silence has no pitch. It has no loudness. And so it's not clear what the scientific method can zoom in on to, to study this phenomenon.
4: To address this, Ray and other scientists in the field have to rely on illusions of time. A famous example is the so-called one is more illusion, and it's one I can demonstrate now with you as the test subject. You're about to hear two beeps followed by one beep. Your task is to identify which is longer, the first two beeps combined or the longer beep. Here you go. One.
11: Two. So which
4: was longer, the first two beeps together or the longer beep on its own? Here it is again.
11: One.
4: Two. Now subjects overwhelmingly judge the one long beep as longer than the two short beeps. But in fact, they are exactly the same length.
1: The sound waves that we hear are just continuous waves of sounds without like obvious discrete breaks. But what we perceive are discrete sounds, so we don't we don't just perceive a continuous jumble of sound waves, but we perceive discretized sounds, such as words or like musical notes. And the process that makes this possible is this process called event segmentation, where our auditory system breaks this continuous input into discrete representations. And this process of event segmentation is thought to be underlying this one is more illusion.
4: And you might be able to see where this is going, using the theory of event segmentation. Ray Zhao's intuition was to invert the one-is-more illusion by substituting the silence with sound, and vice versa.
1: And if these moments of silence trigger the same auditory process that happens with sound, then we have evidence that the auditory system can produce experiences of silence.
4: So, let's have another go. We're going to repeat the experiment, but with silences instead of beeps cutting through ambient noise in a bustling restaurant. It's the same format as last time, Two short silences followed by a longer silence which seems longer overall. 1 Now I'm still interpreting the two shorter silences as being faster than the longer silence. And it turns out I'm not alone.
1: The results of our experiment was that subjects judged the one silence to be longer than the sequence of two silences and that the proportion of subjects that did so were exactly the same as the proportion of subjects that judged the one sound as longer than the two sounds. Our results about silence challenge common conceptions of perception, of hearing more specifically. We generally think that Perception is about seeing stuff out there in the world. When we hear things, there must be a sound for us to hear. When we see things, there must be objects out there for us to see. But what our results seem to suggest is that our auditory system can produce perceptual experiences even when there's nothing out there in the world to be perceived.
4: What next? Have you got any follow-up questions or research planned to enhance our understanding of this topic even further?
1: I think it's still an open question whether we can positively hear pure silences, not in contrast with sound, such as silences heard during meditation, or silences heard when it's late at night and you're gazing at the stars and there's no sound. We also have ordinary experiences of visual absences, such as when something moves, moves across your visual field and then suddenly disappears. And we have some current work I try to ask whether the one is more illusion also happens with visual disappearances.
4: Well, we anticipate the findings of that study with a lot of interest. Thank you so much.
7: James Titko speaking to Johns Hopkins University's Raise You Go. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how
5: Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk.
8: Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions.
7: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Will Tingle, as we look back at the best scientific stories of the past 12 months. Our 2023 retrospective continues in August, when an unusual injury treatment led us to look back at ancient history's medicinal know-how – England cricketer Moen Ali credited an NHS worker for helping to heal his injured finger after she sent him a wonder gel made of honey. But honey, among other perhaps unorthodox substances, can be used to help heal wounds. In fact, the practice dates back earlier than even the ancient Egyptians. To find out more, Chris Smith chatted with Sophie Goggin, Senior Curator of Biomedical Science at National Museum Scotland.
2: We don't know exactly the first time honey was used medicinally, but we have some really early recorded examples in Sumerian clay tablets from around 6200 BC and also examples in Egyptian papyrus about using honey to treat wounds and also sore throat. But historic use of honey has kind of been seen across the entire globe from Greece to the Romans to the Mayans to the Babylon.
5: Do we know what they were doing with it? And were all those practices roughly the same?
2: They may not have known why exactly honey was helping, but they certainly knew that honey was helping to heal wounds. So we now have the benefit of knowing that honey is an anti-inflammatory and antibacterial, and also has the great benefit of it provides a damp, or I know people hate this word, but moist environment uh, for wounds to heal, which actually helps them speed up healing and less likely to scar, which are both things that are recorded of honey being used to treat wounds.
5: So they would have smeared it on when they had some kind of laceration or some kind of penetrating injury, honey would have just gone on almost out of the jar.
2: (laughs) Yes, I think out of what I imagine were quite beautiful jars and what maybe we call today a poultice, also something that people might remember or recognise, also being used in hot water uh, with citrus to help with a sore throat.
5: Did they document why they thought it might be working or were they just comfortable with the fact that this appears to work, we'll just use it?
2: Writing about medicine of that time is very much more like an instruction manual, They're not giving us a lot of insight into why they thought things, but what they would use to treat certain diseases. I should also say some from that time are a little bit less helpful than our honey example.
5: I mentioned leeches in the introduction because that's the other one that's got a little bit of ick factor, but also is a great story in the telling. And it really works. Plastic surgeons use leeches to get the blood out of bits of tissue that otherwise would would suffer from what we call venous congestion. So we know that this is the real deal. That also has a rich history, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, so there's examples of leeches depicted in tombs from ancient Egypt around 1400 BC. But a particular record I like is a medicinal record from 50 AD by Philly the Elder, which recommended leeches to be used for treating hemorrhoids, which I imagine would work but would be quite an experience
5: quite uncomfortable i should think (laughs) wow Uh, i'm not really sure what to ask (laughs) off the back of that but again did they did they use them consistently because we know that it works in the modern era when we're putting bits of the body back together because the problem isn't getting blood into tissue it's that the blood gets in and can't get out so surgeons tend to like leeches because they'll draw the waste blood away from tissue which means more fresh blood goes in did our ancient historical ancestors did did they know about this sort of practice or were they just doing it because it seemed again a bit magical and occasionally someone got better so they thought well well, let's do this
2: well galen of the four humors fame was a big fan of leeches in order to balance the humors so to remove blood from the body but i would say they hit peak popularity if you can in around the 19th century for the same type of thing just to remove blood Hemorrhoids? (laughs)
5: Hemorrhoids? Those <laughs> but not hemorrhoids that time. I hadn't heard that before until <laughs> you brought you'd it up.
2: You'd hope not.
5: <laughs> Are there any other examples of things a bit like leeches from history where you can find that there's actually quite a, a long history of its use but it turns out to be quite a valid treatment and is it still in use today?
2: Yeah so one that springs to mind is cloves and clove oil which have been used in dentistry for hundreds of years and before that in traditional medicine. So clove oil is kind of cool and contains a chemical called eugenol, which might help decrease pain and also fight infection. So it's why you often are told to dub clove oil on a wound in your mouth. But that chemical is actually used in dental preparations for sealing root canals and also for pain control.
5: Amazing. We know that people are increasingly getting interested in folklore Remedies, and and they're going and talking to indigenous people about indigenous solutions to various diseases and that's how a number of new medicines have been discovered in in inverted commas are any projects underway to data mine historical texts to look for lost treatments or or lost antidotes to, to various things so that we can discover things in writing rather than just currently in use
2: Ooh, I don't know, but I absolutely love that idea. I always say as a curator, I love people looking to history. And the idea of people looking to history books could always be a great starting point or inspiration for any research project.
7: Sophie Goggins. In October came the announcement that was touted as the biggest breakthrough in cervical cancer treatment of the past 20 years, cutting the risk of women dying from the disease or the cancer returning by about 35%. Chris Smith spoke to Mary McCormack, lead investigator of the trial at UCL Cancer Institute.
11: The gold standard is weekly chemotherapy, the drug called cisplatin, and daily radiotherapy for five weeks. And that's the external component of the radiation and then internal radiotherapy, or also called brachytherapy. So it's those two components and a drug delivered once a week. That is still, you know, the gold standard, and it has been for 25 years. And when you
5: do this, hitherto, we've been achieving about a 70% success rate.
11: Well, from trials that have been published in the last couple of years, we could expect that seven in 10 women would be alive at five years.
5: and. Where did you think there was a gap in terms of the treatment regime then? Where did you try and intervene differently?
11: The main problem we felt was that the cancer was coming back outside of the area that was treated with the radiotherapy. So we could treat the area where the cancer was, treat the draining lymph glands, and the cancer would come back, for example, in lymph glands in the belly area, or it might come back in the lungs. So it would come back somewhere else. That was really the problem that we wanted to tackle.
5: And how did you try and do it differently then?
11: We put a new twist on an old theme. Some years ago, people had tried to give chemotherapy before the radiation, but some of the trials weren't very well controlled. They were quite small and there were lots of different regimens. So we said, let's take the most active drugs that we have in this type of cancer, which is carboplatin and a paclitaxel. Let's put those two drugs together. We know they work well. Let's give them every week because that then doesn't allow the cancer cells time to recover. So let's do it for six weeks because if we do it for for many, many weeks longer than that, then we may compromise the rest of the treatment. The other thing we did was we said, right, okay, as soon as we've done this six weeks, we must get on with the radiotherapy immediately afterwards. So we must start that in week seven, because if we leave a gap, the chances are the cancer will start to regrow again, and we might potentially be worse off than we were before we did anything at all.
5: And how did you do the trial to compare what was the best approach?
11: So we recruited 500 women and randomized them, 250 women to each group, 250 to the standard treatment and 250 to the standard treatment with the additional chemotherapy for six weeks beforehand. And we worked it out in such a way that we made sure we had two groups of women that were well-matched, similar ages, similar extent of the cancer, similar size cancers. We treated them. We followed them up to year five and at each time we checked to see was there any evidence that the cancer had come back and also how they were in general terms. Did they have any more side effects and how they were getting on generally.
5: And how did the two groups compare?
11: So in our standard of care arm, which is our standard chemo radiation, 64% of the women were alive without evidence of cancer at five years. However, in the group where we gave the additional chemotherapy, 73% were alive without evidence of the cancer coming back. So almost one in 10 more women were alive at five years with the additional chemotherapy. We also then looked to see how many women were alive overall. And again, we found that in the standard arm, 72% were alive at five years. However, in the arm that where we gave the additional chemotherapy, we found that 80% were alive at five years. So this is our absolute improvement of 8%.
5: Do you have an insight into why this is making such a difference, how it's working?
11: I think because we're giving weekly treatment, early in the treatment of the whole disease. And I think we're treating those cancer cells that might have escaped and that might be lurking or nesting somewhere else, but haven't had a chance to grow. Those are the ones that we don't pick up on any scans. And if we get rid of those early, they're not going to be able to grow into secondary tumours. And this is what we were able to demonstrate, that we had less recurrences in those areas like the lungs, when we gave the additional chemotherapy. And I think this is probably what's accounted for the improvement in the survival rate.
5: It is a big reduction in mortality, potentially, isn't it? Is this going to become the standard of care now, then?
11: I certainly hope so. Many of the centres that treat cervical cancer participated in the trial, and the drugs are cheap. So this should help it to come into use widely in other parts of the world as well, particularly where this problem is even bigger. You know, South America, Southeast Asia, places in Africa where the numbers are vast. And if they can improve a one in 10 extra women alive at five years would make a huge difference there.
7: Mary McCormack there. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Will Tingle. And we are looking back at our own personal picks for some of the most thought-provoking stories covered on the show in 2023. As we continue with a story from November, which serves as a cautionary tale for this time of the year. As more than a few of us get busy with merriment, some may fall victim to a fate worse than a visitation by three spirits. I'm of course referring to the red wine headache. But there is good news, as researchers in the United States say they may have found the source of red wine headaches, a molecule made by red grapes called quercetin. Chris Smith spoke to the Professor Andrew Waterhouse from the University of California, Davis.
0: So I was talking to a winemaker in Napa Valley, and he was having trouble with wine headaches. And I said, you know, I think one possibility is there's a compound in wine that causes vasorelaxation and that's known to cause some headaches. And he said, oh, that doesn't cause real serious headaches. So it's, it's an inflammatory response that gives serious headaches. That was a bit deflating. But after thinking about how do we get inflammation when people drink wine, I thought of this situation where some people, mostly East Asians, uh, when they drink, they get a flushing reaction. And that's inflammatory. Their skin turns red. And so I started looking into, uh, do those folks get headaches? And it turns out they do. Then I looked into how does this happen? How do these people get this inflammatory response and this flushing? And it turns out they have an enzyme used to clear um, acetaldehyde, which is a normal metabolite of alcohol. So when you consume alcohol, it's broken down in two steps. First acetaldehyde, which is somewhat toxic. And then we have a second enzyme that quickly clears it, Problem is, for those folks who get flushing, the second enzyme does not work well. So it seemed, well, is it possible that something in wine could be blocking that second enzyme?
5: Does that mean then that something in the wine can inhibit the removal of the acetaldehyde, which is the first thing that alcohol gets broken down to in the body, so that 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 builds up to a level that, that would be higher than normal? And that's what gives people bright red face and a tendency or preponderance to get a headache in the aftermath with some red wines
0: exactly the approach i took was to say okay since i've worked on wine chemistry for 30 years i have in the back of my head a pretty good inventory of what's in red wine that's different from white wine so i started looking through that list of compounds to see if any of them have been reported to inhibit the enzyme and that's when i stumbled upon quercetin quercetin is much higher in red wine than in white wine. The levels are tenfold or greater
5: It's in the skin, isn't it?
0: Yes. The grapes produce it in response to sunlight. It's like sunscreen for grapes. It just happens to block the metabolic process and lead to accumulation of acetaldehyde. So what we did actually for our experiment was we simply got this enzyme and tested a series of wine phenolics to see if they would inhibit this enzyme. And it turns out a specific metabolite of quercetin inhibits it very well.
5: Does that mean then you drink this stuff, it gets metabolized in your body into the thing that inhibits the enzyme, or does it just do it without any further metabolism in the body? Is it a direct inhibitor there from the get-go?
0: There's a little bit of a nuance here. When you consume quercetin into your body, your body converts most of it to quercetin glucuronide. It's a metabolite form that helps your body clear it from your system.
5: And in the process of trying to clear it, you actually effectively activate or enhance the inhibitory effect. So you you need a little while to metabolize your red wine, and then it starts to become more potent as a way of making you have a headache. So does that mean then that the more red wine I drink the more likely I am to get a headache, but not just because I'm boozing, because I'm building up this metabolite. And any alcohol I've then consumed is going to contribute to this mix.
0: Well, um, I don't recommend drinking a lot, but the occurrence of a headache, uh, everyone doesn't experience that. So some people get a headache as soon as they start drinking red wine, and some never do. So we're not sure how to explain that. I mean, we presume that there's obviously a difference in their metabolic systems, But the details, of course, are going to take more research.
5: Given that you've identified and you can point the finger at at least one causative molecule that does this, I'm staring at a cheeky little French Cote du Rhone. Is that as bad as, say, one of your Napa Valley wines or are all red wines made equal? How are you going to take this forward?
0: Well, it turns out that because the grapes produce this in response to sunlight, Uh, winemakers can actually modify the levels by adjusting the amount of sun the grapes experience. One of the problems with reducing sun exposure is that a certain amount, in fact, enhances the quality of red wine. And if you look in famous vineyards, you'll see that the vines are relatively small and often, most of the time, you can see the grapes. And since you can see the grapes, the sun can see the grapes, and the grapes get exposed directly to some sunlight. On the other hand, very inexpensive wine is generally comes from very large vines, which have a lot of shade over the over the fruit. Uh, they need all that all those leaves to produce enough sugar to ripen the fruit, because they usually have a large crop. So the only advice I can give you today is that less expensive wines are most likely going to have less of the quercetin and its various forms.
5: So can you share with us your favorite tipple as as a wine chemist? You you must have (laughs) one that you're prepared to put your name behind, either extremely worth the headache or one that definitely doesn't go headache positive.
0: Oh, boy. In California, there's a, a wine company that makes some very nice Zinfandels. And I like Zinfandel because... It's sort of the iconic California grape. And uh, there's a company called Ridge that has been making very good Zinfandels for about 50 years. And uh, so if I was going to recommend one wine, I would say a California Zinfandel. And I believe you can might even be able to find uh, that brand in UK wine shops.
7: Andrew Waterhouse there. And let's round off the year with an incredible undertaking as samples of the asteroid Bennu returned to Earth via NASA's OSIRIS-REx spacecraft. OSIRIS-REx launched in 2016, arrived at the asteroid Bennu in December of 2018, and five years later, the samples it took landed back on Earth for examination. Some of said samples have since arrived in the UK and are now undergoing testing by researchers at the Natural History Museum and Open Manchester and Oxford Universities. Chris Smith spoke to the leader of the Planetary Materials Group at the Natural History Museum, Sarah Russell.
12: What we actually have in London is two glass slides stuck to each other, which have got a little kind of depression in them. And inside this little depression is a teaspoonful of a black powder. It sort of looks like sugar. If sugar was black, this is what it would look like. And um, yeah, it's just the most exciting thing that I've seen because we've been waiting for this for a long time.
5: How did it get to you?
12: So this is an asteroid from NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission, which has been a long time in the planning, but it actually launched in 2016 from Cape Canaveral. So I was there with my family. We watched this rocket blast off into space. Didn't see it for seven years until September this year when the spacecraft returned from the asteroid it had been visiting, which is Asteroid Bennu, a near-Earth asteroid. So it had collected a piece of the surface of the asteroid uh, and then made its way eventually back to Earth. And the spacecraft dropped the container at the top of the atmosphere where it landed in Utah. The spacecraft has now gone off to explore some other asteroids. It's dubbed
5: the most dangerous asteroid in the solar system at the moment, isn't it, Bennu? Why has (laughs) it got such a bad rep? (laughs)
12: well so Bennu is what's called a near-earth asteroid which means it orbits the sun in a similar path to that of the earth and every so often it gets really close to earth and there's a chance that in 200 years or so it might even impact the earth but the odds of that happening are actually really really small but um the probability of that happening as well as its size mean that, yeah, it has been dubbed the most dangerous object in the solar system. So one of the aims of the mission was to learn more about its precise orbit so we can work out exactly what its path would be in the future and also bring this material back to Earth so we can learn more about the properties of the material. So if we ever do need to deflect it away from Earth, we know what we're dealing with.
5: And what are we dealing with? What can you tell from your initial looking at this?
12: It's exceeded our wildest dreams. So one of the things we've discovered so far... Is that it contains loads of carbon. It contains several percent carbon, which is mostly in the form of organic material. And that's really exciting because it's possible that asteroids like Benume have pelted the early Earth and brought down all the nutrients that. Were needed for life to flourish and we also know so far that it also contains loads of water so the most abundant mineral in it is a kind of clay mineral that can suck up water inside its structure we're really interested in finding out you know where all this water came from um, and that will tell us something about how water moves around the solar system may eventually tell us how we got to be on this habitable watery planet.
5: How do you actually work with it and how do you make sure that you don't accidentally introduce Earth to it?
12: Yeah, so that's one of the big challenges of dealing with this sample. So we we do have other bits of asteroid on Earth in the form of meteorites, but they've all been in contact with the Earth's atmosphere. So to various degrees, they're, they're slightly contaminated. So this is one of the things that makes this sample return material, really, really special. Uh, And so, so far it has not been in contact with the Earth's atmosphere at all. So we keep it in a nitrogen box and we handle it by putting our hands into these big, thick rubber gloves, which go in to the box and then we can manipulate it that way.
5: And what sorts of tests are you doing? I I know you're you're giving some details about the composition and things, but Um, many laboratories could do that. So what special extra... Pizzazz is your (laughs) skill at the Natural History Museum going to bring to this party?
12: Yeah, so we really specialise in mineralogy. So we're going to really kind of dig into what minerals this asteroid is made of. So we've got some special techniques. So for example, we've got one technique called x-ray diffraction that fires a beam of x-rays at the sample. And then The interaction of the minerals with the x-rays deflects them in different directions. And by measuring that, we can find out exactly which crystals we're dealing with. So we're going to do that. We're going to do um, CT scanning. So that's the same sort of piece of equipment that you have in hospitals to look inside humans. We can also use that to look inside the sample and see what its structure is like. And we'll also use electron microscopes to look in really fine detail what it looks like and also find out what its chemical composition is that way.
5: And I know you're saying that by CT scanning it you get some clues as to the structure. Does that tell you anything about the structure of the thing it came from? Because that at the end of the day is one of the things you said was a goal here to try and understand more about the parent body and the risk it might pose. But does that tell us anything more about what it was doing out there in the solar system right back early in history?
12: Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly the the aim of this work. So one of the great things about this mission is that we've got this sort of um, big scale information from the spacecraft going to the asteroid and taking pictures and taking measurements of the whole asteroid and looking at its surface in detail. And we also have the opportunity to look at this really fine scale information about what these little bits of dust look like. And we can try and link the two to each other. One of the things we found when we looked at the surface of the asteroid was that there are actually several different kinds of rocks on the surface, which suggests it's actually a kind of rubble pile made up of different boulders, some of which might have come from other asteroids. So it might be that we can actually sample loads of different asteroids by looking at our little grains one by one.
5: How long is this going to take you, Sarah? (laughs) <laughs> the rest
12: of my career Chris <laughs> so each grain can take us weeks to properly characterise so it's going to be a long haul we'll get the first results out next year and um, the mission officially this kind of analysis stage of the mission lasts for two years so it lasts until twenty twenty-five. 2025 um, so we'll be going all guns ahead until then for sure
5: Are you tempted on April the 1st to ring up NASA and say I've got a bit of bad news I've dropped it.
12: (laughs) I am now. (laughs) No, that would just be too awful. That's honestly my worst nightmare. Every time I touch it, I sort of fear I'm going to have some spasm or something and our whole sample will be lost. So that is just too close to the bone to even joke about.
7: And since then, some early reports are saying that samples from Bennu contain dust that could be older than the solar system itself. Definitely something to keep tabs on in the new year. And let's round off the recap with a couple of the best question of the weeks of 2023. Starting us off, how do we know when and where lightning hits the Earth? James Titko spoke to the Met Office's lightning scientist, Dr Graham Marlton.
3: Lightning is an electrical discharge through our atmosphere. It produces a very strong electrical current of the order of thousands of amps, and that heats up the air around it, which causes an audible sound wave to propagate outwards, which we hear as thunder. And finally, because there's a large electrical current flowing downwards, that actually generates a very broadband radio transmission, and it can be detected at various parts of the radio spectrum. So one of them is the VLF, between 3 and 30 kilohertz, and one of the great things about VLF is it can propagate thousands of kilometres without becoming attenuated. So at the Met Office, we operate a, a lightning location system that uses this property, So a lightning strike occurs somewhere over the UK and a VLF radio wave will emanate out from the lightning strike. And we operate 10 to 11 receivers across Europe and it will be detected at each receiver. So we know the relative time between each receiver. And from that, we can geolocate the lightning strike. Uh, And so in practice, our lightning location system, Leela, will detect many, many lightning strikes each second. And it's able to geolocate each one and position it.
7: Dr Graham Marlton. And from making a racket to using a racket, do tennis players have favourite balls? And how do they pick which ball to serve? Rhys James took these questions to tennis coach James Hode.
13: When we're in a match, on our first serve, we're looking for the newest ball, because basically that's going to fly through the air a lot quicker, a lot faster, and the serve is the most important shot and you dictate the point from the serve. On my second serve, I'm looking for a ball that's a bit more fluffed up, slightly older ball that's gonna travel through the air slower because what I want to actually do is get my second serve in with a bit of spin and then I wanna be able to trade, rally in a point and then build the point to then be able to win it. So with the first serve, I'm looking for a quick serve, a flat serve. The second serve is going to be less in pace, give my opponents some variety, not the same serve, not the same look all the time. And that's how we decide as tennis players what balls you are going to use. So you might see Andy Murray at Wimbledon and he'll pick up three or four balls and he'll chuck a couple of balls away. But his first ball will be the newest ball because that is the most important shot get a short return and then build on that maybe come into the net to volley to finish the point
4: so how are you recognizing the
13: differences between the balls what is it that you're spotting on the balls? okay so um i'd be looking for the print on the balls how new that looks for a first serve on a second serve i'm maybe looking for a little bit more wear on the ball logo and definitely some more fluff on the outside of the ball if you can see This ball here has got a little bit more fluff around the the edge of the ball, so that's going to be a bit slower. That's going to be my second serve ball. And then this ball here hasn't got so much fluff on it and it's going to travel through the air quicker, so I'll be looking to hit a first serve with that ball. And when the players are discarding the balls, what is it that they're doing? Is it psychological? Is that science involved? Are they trying to find a ball that they maybe won a previous point with? Andy Murray is a great example of this. He's super fussy over the balls. If he's won a point with the ball, he'll deliberately ask the ball boy or the ball girl for that ball. It's definitely psychological, I think. If you've won a point, you're like, right, give me that ball back. That's a good ball. Self-confidence is huge.
7: James Hoad there. Well, that's your lot for the best of 2023. It's been a pleasure to bring you all of the breaking science news. Here's to 2024, whatever may happen. Thank you all very much for listening. Thanks to everyone that featured on our shows. And if you were looking to give us a belated Christmas gift, you can always support the show by donating on our website. We've made it very quick and very secure. The link is nakedscientists.com forward slash donate. Next time, as we enter the new year, we take a look ahead at what we might expect to see in 2024 in the fields of AI, climate and space. Do join us then. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Will Tingle. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.